Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from... Denver, Colorado in the Denver Art Museum. What an amazing place this is. I've been coming to Denver, God, since 1973. And when I first came here, I think there was like, oh, there was McDonald's and and a couple of like, you know, steak and potato restaurants and maybe some rack of lamb restaurants because it was Colorado. Sure. But wow, have things changed. And uh, my next guest knows all about that because he's the co-founder of Eat Denver. I mean, how many restaurants are in Denver now? Um, I mean, what time is it? Okay. And Something's by the way, open. that's Adam Schlegel, by the way, who's the, who's the co-founder of Eat Denver. I mean, seriously, if you, if you, I'm not even talking breweries now. I'm just talking restaurants. Sure. I think, you know, the report I've seen in the past three years, 250 new restaurants every year have opened up. And this how year- How many close? Uh, not nearly at that clip. I can right. tell you that. Yeah. So the offerings right now, the opportunities to go dine is-, is better than it's ever been and sure. the ethnic opportunity you want mexican you got mexican you want thai you want Chinese, it's whatever you want yeah absolutely i mean that's one of the greatest parts of the emergence of the city and what it's doing and we're still a bit of a meat and potatoes town in that we do know it's a it's a cattle town and, and we understand but most that people but most so much... people outside of denver don't know that they think it's a ski town yeah, I mean, Denver... Or the gateway to ski towns. We, you know, we often talk about this as much as we can in the restaurant community of, of how do we spread this good word because what's happening here is, is really special. I mean, we've got... It's one of the most attractive climates you can you can kind of find in here, and there's a lot of young ingenuity 
creativity that's happening here. And so you're finding people coming not only from here, born and raised, and getting their like dreams created, but you're finding people coming from East Coast, West Coast, in the middle, and seeing this is is kind of a land of opportunity, um, and it's hungry, and we need more diversity. And so you've really, over the past 10 years, this city has exploded for what is great food. And of course, it's not just the restaurant scene, it's the arts and cultural scene as well. But what's the most surprising thing to you? Not that there's been an explosion, but the way it's exploded. The the clip that's happened and that it continues to rally on and on and on. I mean, I think that everybody has this question of a bubble and when and if it ever pops. But year in and year out, there is a better restaurant. There is a new restaurant. There's a new neighborhood that, you know, when I grew up here, I would never would have stepped foot in. That suddenly is, is so cool. I'm like five years gone. I, I missed the boat of coolness through there. And it's just emerging and popping, and you're finding... By the way, I've been missing the boat of coolness for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to assume that I'm ever going to be on that boat, but at least I see people drifting down. I'm like, oh, that sounds... That looks cool. It's a good boat. And yet, it's, it's one thing to open a restaurant, or many restaurants. It's another thing to do it right, and to do it sustainably, and to do it smartly. And I hate to use the word political correctness, but, you know, Denver does pride itself on, on taking responsibility. Absolutely. I mean, my... You know, I started uh, co-founder of a restaurant called Snooze AM Eatery, and my brother and I started about 11 years ago. It's a breakfast and lunch restaurant. One of our hallmarks and, and one of the things we really drive is sustainability. And it's not just what we put on our plate. It's not just the ingredients, which is certainly a hallmark, but Colorado is an outdoorsy place. We really take pride in, in our nature, our environment. And so water is a very huge issue for our city. Um, electricity, cycling, transportation. How do we actually move around and do this? These are all like values I feel Colorado wears on its sleeve. Do you, you offer see, discounts for bikers? We do. We actually offer 10% discounts for bikers. We actually got the second bike rack on street bike rack just installed out in front of our first location um, last week. We give discounts or even free meals to all of our staff that rides bikes. You know, there's it's the cycling community's uh, such a strong I will even say artists in, in what is creating such a fun, dynamic city for it. So we're all trying to figure it out. There's a great new event that's going to happen here August 11th through the 13th called the Velorama, which is a revitalization of a USA Pro Cycling Challenge. This is going to have some of the top athletes in the world coming down to celebrate cycling, food, beer, bands, city. Cycling and beer, yeah, there's a combination. <laughs> it happens. It happens a lot. Now, tell me about Greener Denver. Sure. Well, it's really the organizations eat Denver. So it's been around for about ten years. We do had a we had a creation of it, a subset called Eat Greener Denver. That's what I'm talking about, right? So this was about thirty of the restaurants involved that really wanted to figure out how to be better stewards. Um, they realized, you know, restaurants for their size are the largest users of waste. Um, electricity and water for any other comparable business. So 30 restaurants got together and said, how can we do something to help solve this? And we met for about two odd years. Our city ended up um, gravitating into our group and working with it. And because of that, we helped create the Certifiably Green Denver. So a restaurant or a retail business now can actually go out and get certified. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
statistic that, uh, if you're just joining us on the show, might surprise you. It certainly surprised me since I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which I thought was the beer capital of the world. I now stand corrected. There are more. There's more beer being brewed in Denver than any other city in America. And, I mean, we're talking a few hundred breweries. And my next guest knows a little bit about that. He's the uh, founder and CEO of the Tivoli Brewery, and his name is Corey Marshall. Hey, Corey. Hey. How many breweries are we talking about? Well, we've got uh, over 230 breweries right here in Denver and uh, in the four to 500 in Colorado. And you're one of the oldest, if not the oldest. We are the oldest brewery in the state of Colorado and really the second oldest in the country. You even predate Coors? We predate Coors. Wow. Wow. Now, I know what Coors did during Prohibition. What did you guys do during Prohibition? Similar. We uh, made pre- malted milk balls? We did. We made. You didn't? Not, not milk balls. We did a uh, malted drink called Dash, uh, so a non-alcoholic or you low still, alcohol. You still make it? We aren't making that particular brand at this point in time. We've had some, some talk about it, though. You know, we've done this show from a number of, uh, of distillers and breweries around the country and around the world. We did one up in Utica, New York. Uh, it was Utica Club, right? And they make root beer. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, but you're not doing that. Not yet. Oh, I love the not yet part. Okay, good. <laughs> so how many different kinds of beer are you making? Right now we're brewing about 12 different styles of beer. Wow. Like? So we focus on a lot of the historic brands here from Colorado. Uh, we produce, for instance, the Tivoli Hellas Lager, which is the oldest recipe in the state. It's a really good Bavarian-style lager. And Okay, stupid question. Yeah. The hops are not from here? The hops for this are not from here. They're actually from uh, Germany. And is that the way you started? It was, yeah. yeah. When Denver started and Colorado started, there were no good brewing ingredients here in the state. And uh, so they had to bring everything in, um, brought it into Fort Leavenworth, and then took it by wagon, covered wagon right here to Colorado to brew. So it was actually quite a endeavor to brew beer back then. It was. Now, if you take a look at the eastern seaboard of America, a lot of the German immigrants were the, were the brewmeisters. Correct. What about here? Same. So uh, really the first settlers here uh, were, were the German uh, population, and uh, they established Denver and, and uh, the town of Auraria, which is uh, right here in Denver as well, and that's where all the brewing started. Now, I have to ask this question. How did three universities end up next to a brewery? Maybe that's a rhetorical question. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think just because they wanted the brewery. You know. uh, no, it really, uh, where, where Tivoli was, was a very industrial site uh, historically. So a lot of industry started there. At some point in time, the, the state and the city took over that area and uh, really just came in to clean it up and uh, establish it as an education center down there. But they left the brewery in the historic building. Um, at the time, obviously, um, uh, that's really the end of the Tivoli Brewery. At the time, they closed in 1969, and then we brought it back to life in 2012. So you have been closed at one point. We did, yep. So from 1969 to 2012, you didn't exist. Correct. But you still can claim it to be the first brewery. We are. Wow. Why so long a period of time? From 69 till, till 2012? Um, you know, they, they reopened it uh, in the early 80s as a mall. So it was repurposed and uh, uh, really was the center of the nightlife and, and social life here in, in Denver. That changed when they opened up Coors Field about 10 blocks away and uh, kind of took a lot of the restaurant business and nightlife that direction. Once that happened, uh, the mall company sold it to the university uh, or the Auraria campus uh, to be used as their student center. Now, distribution. I remember I, I was talking to the governor earlier when I was a correspondent for Newsweek, 
And when Nixon was president, he, the Western White House was in San Clemente. Of course, the White House is back in D.C. And when Air Force One would fly from uh, basically Southern California to Andrews Air Force Base, it would often make an unscheduled stop in Denver. Right. So they could load up Coors beer because it wasn't distributed outside the state of Colorado. That's right. What about your distribution? We focus primarily here in Colorado. So, You're not um, shipping anywhere else? Well, we did just start shipping. Uh-huh. We're actually, we're, we just started shipping out of state. We're now shipping to uh, Miami, Florida. Well, okay. Why Miami? <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting. It's uh, you, uh, in the shipping world, uh, it's really amazing where you have low-cost shipping. Uh, there's so much traffic of refrigerated trucks going back and forth between Florida and Colorado. It's actually a very low-expense way to get down there. And you're shipping a lot. Which, which brand are you shipping? We're shipping uh, different brands that we produce, but primarily the original Tivoli Hellas lager. That's a heavy one. No, it's actually a light beer. Hellas, really? Hellas in German means pale or light, so it's a light Bavarian-style lager. But, but you're, doing a, lot a, you're doing a heavy flavor. one too, right? We do some heavy ones as well. Yeah. Some heavy ones. <laughs> what, what's a heavy one? So the uh, it, heavy can be two different things. Heavy can be heavy in alcohol and or heavy in terms of... Uh, darker, and we do a darker beer called Siggy's Wild Horse Buck Beer. It's about six. You had a meeting seven. on that title, did you? We did. <laughs> <laughs> if you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. Denver, to me, when I first came here, was, uh, and I should say I came here when I was, what, 23 years old. It was, you know, fast food in one hotel, and it was basically where people stopped on their way to go skiing. Uh, Life has changed. Now they stopped to come to the Art Museum. And joining me now is the assistant curator of Western American Art at the Denver Art Museum, Jennifer Henneman. How was that for an introduction? That's fantastic. Thank you. But, I mean, was it representative of what we're talking about? Because... This is quite a this is quite a building. This is a stunning building, and in fact, we have two very impressive buildings that compose this museum: the Gioponti Building, built in 1971, and what we call the Hamilton Building, built by Liebeskind in uh, ten years ago, 2010. Yeah, is that right? About my, seven my math years is ago. off. Seven years. It's 2010. okay. 2010. It's okay. <laughs> I'm an art historian, not a mathematician. Well, that, then we have something in common. <laughs> not the art historian part, right. the mathematician part. <laughs> Great. What you know, you have studied this basically all your life in terms of your professional life what makes this building and the art here that special because every museum will tell you they're great every museum will tell you you know they're doing something different Mm -hmm. but every time i come here i not only get the impression i it registers with me that you are doing something different i think i think i can give you two responses one from the inside and one from the outside from the inside i this institution functions so beautifully. The teams here, they know their work. They're highly skilled. And they work as teams. And any exhibition is a group project. It's difficult to find an institution where the teams function so seamlessly together. And I think what that ends up being for the public are these beautifully executed, highly elegant, highly thoughtful, and relevant exhibitions. For example? Well, for example, we've got... From the Western American Department, I can speak to two in particular that are, are important to us. Uh, one is a collaboration with an it's a cultural institution, cultural partner down the street, 
History Colorado. We have 50 of our most iconic works on display there from the Petrie Institute of Western American Art. And they are displayed in context with artifacts from History Colorado's collections. And they, in that way, they tell richer, more diverse stories of the American West. Because our artworks are stunning masterworks representative of the mid-19th to the mid-20th century. But what what they are are, are largely white Euro-American men coming from the East to the West, depicting what they see, going back, and painting from memory and from their sketches their visions of the American West. What that leaves out are voices such as women's voices, American Indian voices, uh, voices of entrepreneurs and tourists, and the History Colorado artifacts fill in those gaps in really meaningful ways. To give it a much more uh, representative opportunity of storytelling. That's that's the idea, and and I'm sure you you were aware of the fact that in an, any exhibition, many stories get left out. But well, we've history's tried to always tell. written by the victor. <laughs> that's true. You know that. That's true. But we've tried to balance. You know, certainly, you know the the West has a history that is complex and difficult. It's one that presents narratives of gain and of loss simultaneously. And it's important to acknowledge the complexity of that history, which I think is one thing this exhibit does quite well, without wallowing uh, and without Bible... Wait a minute, I love wallowing. (laughs) I know. Well, I think there's a fine line. It's worth acknowledging and it's worth being in thoughtful about these difficult histories, but it's also worth celebrating the reasons why we live here now. And and this exhibit, I think, reminds us of those things, reminds us of why Denver is such an exciting city to live in today. And yet, once you do that, those kinds of exhibits, it creates the opportunity for more mm-hmm. because people g- can connect the dots. Right. It really is about connecting right. the dots. Absolutely. And we, we had the wonderful opportunity of one of our donors walk through this exhibit, and he said, you know, I grew up in Denver, <laughs> right down the street. I remember when this was a cow town, a, a podunk, out-of-the-way town. And look at what we're doing now. Look at what this museum, look at what these cultural institutes are doing in Denver. He says, in my lifetime, I've seen this city change culturally in ways that I couldn't have imagined. And I think that says a lot from from someone who's been here for a lifetime, um, seeing the city change and, and now presenting this beautiful downtown district with its many cultural institutes for for anybody to enjoy Coloradans well, alike. Well, going back to what you said about filling in those blanks mm-hmm. of the other experience, the American right. Indian, the woman, right. the, the, the tourism, mm-hmm. what part of that story came to light? Well, a little bit of all the stories came to light. <laughs> but, but what was surprising, though? I mean, because it was the first time, perhaps, that you were able to do that. Well, we do have a history of collaborating with cultural institutes in this area, but it's a real challenge, I think, to align two two different slightly differing philosophies one's a history museum one's an art museum the way we interpret those objects the way we present them can often be very different and so one thing but i love the idea that you can combine them because i mean art on its own exists in a vacuum sometimes Mm, right yes i think there is you're giving it perspective well we're trying i don't want to say make it more human but help people feel present with those works and with those artifacts many of which are absolutely works of art in their own right in a way that that is much more embodied uh, and and in that way much more empathetic I guess that uh, what, what you're bringing up is for example if I go to the the Rembrandt Museum in in, in, in Amsterdam mm-hmm. you go in there you look at night watch mm-hmm. right yeah, it's and you and first of all that in itself is impressive because for anybody who's not done that trust me when you walk by it <laughs> keep looking at it and the eyes move with you yeah. Yeah, right yeah. oh yeah but <laughs> What I always ask is, and nobody's around to tell me that, right? What was he going through at the time he painted it? Right. What was going on in his life all around him? What right. prompted him to do certain things? Right. And that's what you're trying to do here, right? 
You're right. I, I think both in, in intimate ways, as in what were people experiencing here on the ground in Colorado, but also in, in larger ways in terms of national identity. How are people thinking about the American West at different points in time? What did that mean? What did the American West mean to people? Because it's different when from the Civil War period to the you know, mid-20th century. The meaning changes slightly. Okay, so mm-hmm. you're the Montana girl. Yeah. How did this exhibit or exhibits mm-hmm. like it change your views of the history? Well, I think I think for anybody who grew up in the West, exhibits like this do ask me to confront challenging histories. My my grandparents moved here in the early moved to Montana, excuse me, in the early 20th century as part of the Homestead Act. And the Homestead Act implied a taking of indigenous lands for agricultural development. And that's something that I think is worth reckoning with and gives me a better perspective into some of the political issues in my home state, but even here um, in the state and beyond. And that's great storytelling, especially for people who didn't even know the story to begin with. Right, absolutely. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio with no particular place to go. And joining me now is one of the performers of the underground music scene a few other places, Esme Patterson. How are you? Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you're a Boulder girl. I'm from Boulder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, what? If, if I read this correctly, you grew up with your sister listening to the old R&B? Yep, our dad is from Boulder as well, actually, and he introduced us to lots of good music, he and he and our mom both. And what was the music that you, you really liked the best? Uh, growing up? Yeah. Uh, man, I mean, it depends, you know, uh, your tastes change, um, but because, I, yeah, because I now, pretty much yeah. have always liked everything, everything that's good. <laughs> and you're now a member of the group Paper Bird? No, no. Uh, I started that band a long time ago here in Denver with a few friends and my sister joined. Uh, and then I left and that, that was, group And that was like an about, indie folk group, right? Yeah, it was like a folk band. And then uh, we were such babies. We were like, you know. By the way, this I is radio. This is, wait a second. This is radio, <laughs> but it should be noted that you look like you still get carded at bars. I do get carded, yes. Yeah, okay, I feel better now. Okay. <laughs> um, but th- I, I quit that group about almost four years ago now. Wow. And now? Three years, maybe. Yeah. And now I do my own solo thing. I have a band that's really great and really loud. And so this is actually a very rare. A uh, moment here of playing an acoustic guitar. I don't do this anymore. I'm so happy that you're doing it. <laughs> what What are you going to play? I'm going to play a song from my newest record called No River. All right, let's do it. Sorry, I have to tune this up a little bit. That's okay. It's it happened. The hot, it's been so hot out. It messes with the instruments. You're listening to Esme Patterson tuning her guitar. And now we're ready. (laughs) That's the song. Thank you. (laughs) Just kidding. I can't keep running. I'm no river. I can't keep running because I'm no river. I can't run forever. I'm no river. I forgive you. <laughs> I 
Patterson. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Great, sure. Now, having sung that, having mm -hmm. played that song, here you are in Denver. The music scene's exploding here. Lots of clubs. Yep. Where are you playing? Uh, I'm excited to play at the Underground Music Showcase, which is a festival that we've been doing here in Denver for a long time. And I started out doing it with my first band probably, yeah, about 10 years ago, <laughs> 11 years ago. And it's. I'm really excited to be playing at the the UMS. We call it coming up in July. That's my next show in town. Well, and other than that, you're touring. I am doing some touring. I'm writing a couple of albums. I'm writing two albums at the same time right now, actually. But That's called multitasking. <laughs> or just being stupid. I don't know. <laughs> Can we find you on the web? I'm. Uh, I think I'm the only Esme Patterson. I think you might. So be. I think I've got the dot com. Yeah. You, you got the you got the monopoly on the <laughs> EsmePatterson.com. There you go. Keep that going. This is Flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You got to pay with plastic. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. When I first came to Denver, of course, I, w I landed at Stapleton. This goes back many, many years. There were airlines here like Continental and the original Frontier and a few other airlines like that. Uh, I actually like Stapleton a lot. 
And then one day they said, nope, we're going to build one way out, way out. And, uh, and they did. And then I worried because they, in order to get there, you had to go on a, on a road named for a guy who hadn't died yet, Pena, <laughs> who at one point had been uh, the, what was the mayor, mayor. the mayor of, of Denver. Uh, and at that point, I was working for the Today Show and, and went out there with, uh, with then-Mayor Wellington Webb, and we were walking on the runways that had not been opened yet. Um, and in those days, DIA stood for doesn't include airplanes. Right. Uh, there was worry. There were worries that the runways were sinking, and then, of course, the bag machines that ate all the bags. I have to say, Denver is a world-class airport. It has turned itself around. It is a pleasure for me to go to, with only one exception that I'll share with my next guest, who's the CEO of the Denver International Airport, uh, Kim Day. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for See, having I, me. See, I had that little opening for you. It was good. I like now, it. And I'll tell you what it is in a second. But to me, it now works. Um, and, and you have so much flow through there now. The thing that's ironic to me is that here we have a new administration talking about infrastructure projects worth about a trillion dollars in investment, and we're going to do this and this and this and this. And I have to remind everybody that the last new major airport in America was Denver more than 20 years ago. Right. We just turned 22. Exactly. We don't have a new airport in this country, except we have a newer airport, which is Denver. We do. Now I'm going to tell you what, what – there's only one thing. You're going to laugh. I know you're going to laugh. When I get on the trains – if I hear that same that country western twang, stop it. <laughs> it's an art program, believe it or not. That is a piece of art. So we would have to decommission it. I'm sorry to say. Can I be part of the decommissioning process? <laughs> you can, we can talk about that. <laughs> no, but it actually works. I mean, everything yeah. except that music for me. I mean, and the other thing that gets me crazy, and it's not necessarily the Denver Airport, but you run an airport, so you you look at what your other counterparts are doing. Absolutely. And here's the question I, I, I want to ask, and it's, it's, not di- it's not directed at Denver. It's directed at airport philosophy, right? Why do people go to airports, or why do I go to airports? I don't go to the airport for fine dining. I don't go to the airport to entertain family and friends. I don't go to the airport to, to do upscale shopping. Um, I really go to the airport, if I'm being honest, to get through the airport to get out of the airport. So when I go to an airport, and it's like loaded with retail, and then there's the, the telltale sign I'm going to be in trouble. They put the rocking chairs in. And when they put rocking chairs in an airport, it sends me a message. And the message is, you're going to be here a while. God, I'm so glad we didn't do the rocking chairs yeah. at Denver. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, yeah, right? I do. So, But you're not our typical passenger. Yeah. We actually did a segmentation study a couple of years ago. And our typical passengers, they want things. They want to have an experience. They want art. They want fine dining. They want good Wi-Fi. Um, you know, I will tell you this, if they know it's there, mm-hmm. for example, uh, two big pet peeves for me were Wi-Fi at airports because you had contracts with people who were draconian in terms of their charges, in terms of general airports. Not Ours just, is free. I know that. I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm saying in general, uh, right? And then the other pet peeve was the art programs that were well-intentioned but not always properly displayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, San Francisco, by the way, has a great art program. They do. And But here's the interesting thing about it, which... They haven't figured out yet. At the United Terminal in San Francisco, they just had the most amazing display of gambling in the in the beginning of the 20th century with all the old slot machines and all and games of chance. And they have moving walkways, right? The actual displays are turned away from the moving walkways into the area where people just walk and don't really walk. They're on the so you're driving down, you're going down the moving walk and you can't see it. 
I agree. I do agree. You saw that, right? Yes, I've seen that. Okay. But, or the old days of art displays was they'd have a, you know, a third grade class trip and they all do finger painting of a plane. Okay. Those days, I know. But now you're doing some serious stuff out there. We are. In fact, this whole city, you know, is very art focused. We have a great 1% for art program. When we opened the hotel, we opened three spectacular new pieces. I don't know if you've seen uh, the counterbalanced uh, pivoting steel pieces in our plaza that move back and forth with the wind and look like a prairie. Yes. And we have a a local artist, Patrick Merrill, took some beetle kill wood and did this amazing um, display. And as the train comes into the hotel, you see it. Um, It has a, it's called Shadow Array and it's spectacular. It's lit at night. So, so the answer pieces. is, as long as you have to be at the airport, you might as well be entertained very well, and that does the job. And We're talking to Kim Day, the CEO of the Denver International Airport. Stay with us. Back with more with your pet peeves as a flyer when we return. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. I remember a famous quote that was given to me by my senior editors at Newsweek when I was working in the Los Angeles office as the West Coast correspondent for that magazine. And we were trying to get them interested in theater uh, in Los Angeles um, and the fact that a lot of people were doing it. And their answer was, there is no theater west of the Hudson. Uh. Um, and, And an attitude that still persists to a certain extent today. Uh, My next guest might disagree with that. Um, He's the executive director of the Broadway division of the Center here in Denver for the Performing Arts. John Eckerberg, how are you, sir? I'm great, Peter. Thanks. Now, you've been here for what? You've been with the Center for 24 years. I have, yes. Um, You heard that quote, and it still persists. People don't think that there's anything west of the Hudson, when in fact, if you take a look at some of the most successful Broadway plays in the last 20 years, one of them started in San Diego. One of them started in Seattle. I mean, they worked their way back. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we are uh, here in Colorado. I guess we are in one of the famed flyover states, as uh, as they call them. Hey, listen, you were born and raised in Madison, Wisconsin. I went to school there. That's a flyover state, too. It certainly is one yeah. of the best ones, of course. It is one of the best ones. Mm-hmm. And a great theater program there, too. They do, yes, yeah. exactly. I wish I could have gone. But here you are, 24 years later. Right. So let's talk about that. You do have theater here. You do have culture here. You have a vibrant performing arts center here. Yes, absolutely. The Denver Performing Arts Complex uh, holds eight different theaters uh, right in the heart of downtown, which is an amazingly vibrant part of the city, as you well know. And are all eight active more or less at the same time? They can be. There's nothing better than being down at the complex on a Friday night in November and you see people flowing into the opera in one of the spaces, into a Broadway show at the Buell next door. Uh, the Symphony, Regional Theater, all kind of coming and going at once. It's a fantastic hub of activity. And that would not have been the case, so to speak, 25 years ago. It had to really develop that way. Yeah, that's right. Um, There was a visionary, uh, Donald Sewell, here who really in the 70s uh, created the Denver Center for the Performing Arts around a vision he had for this, this Center for Arts in downtown Denver. And both himself at a time when people didn't hang in downtown Denver. That's right. Yes, as uh, what's the saying go? The sidewalks roll up at eight or something and they like did. that, and the uh, the tumbleweeds and all that sort of thing. But that is certainly not the case today, luckily. 
Well, let's talk about the kinds of shows that you're doing. Mm-hmm. We're not just talking about road shows like, you know, Man of La Mancha. We're talking other stuff. Sure. Um, you know, Denver is definitely a premier stop for First National touring Broadway shows. So, And one of the things that we have done that we're particularly proud of is launched a lot of First National tours, such as The Lion King after its Broadway run, uh, The Book of Mormon, uh, most uh, fairly recently, If Then, starring Idina Menzel. So we're able to work on or a as lot john travolta mentioned her name one night was Aina Manini. that's close yeah, okay, yeah fine, i yeah. think that's how he said it yeah exactly <laughs> remember that yes absolutely yeah. Yeah. uh so you're, you're launching those first road shows after broadway correct yeah we've had i believe we've done 10 tour launches now if i remember correctly and so the book of mormon in denver was about as close as it could have gotten at that point to salt lake <laughs> that's right and it has subsequently played Salt Lake, yes. Which is amazing mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. I would love to see those reviews. Uh, but also, you, you, can do, you can break out your stars from here, too. Oh, sure. And we also are fortunate to have a very vibrant regional theater company, the DCPA Theater Company, which produces its own 8 to 12 plays right in the arts complex, does a lot of world premiere plays. We just had the Colorado New Play Summit, uh, which... And is that showcasing local playwrights, too? Uh, sometimes there is a local playwright component, to it. A lot of times they commission national playwrights, so there's a pretty vibrant thing going on there. You know, when I when we did the show from, from New Haven and we're talking about, you know, the Yale, the Yale Theater there, I mean, they can bring in major directors and, and major uh, actors because of their proximity to New York City. Sure. Is that a challenge for you? You know, Denver, I think because of the reputation of the arts complex, of the DCPA and the theater company, that it really is a magnet for theater artists and and of course Denver's a great place just to be it's a great place to spend time and the theater community is so culturally supportive that uh, you know we hear from a lot of folks out in New York and of course the West Coast who say hey if you got something you know interesting and cool that you want to do out there give me a call or conversely a playwright in New York who wants to try something out exactly what have you tried out here that 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 exploded um Let's see. I'm. I was just. You know. Top of mind is this. Are some of the new shows that have just come out of the uh, Colorado New Play Summit, such as we did the world premiere of a play entitled The Book of Will that just played the Ricketson Theater and got by Lauren Gunderson that got a lot of acclaim and and will be produced I think around the country in these next few years. And of course, you got Hamilton showing up. Yep, that's coming about a year from now. Yeah, for if you want to get tickets to Hamilton, come to Denver. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, it's a... Uh, it's a hot play. It's a hot play. We're really excited to have it come to Denver fairly early in the tour. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now at radio clearance, over. That's Clarence, over. Over. Roger. Huh? My next guest uh, is an award-winning preservationist. I will call her a unofficial, or maybe even official, Denver historian. Uh, her name is Dana Crawford. And most people, I and, and Dana, please feel free to disagree with me on this, but most people that I know who don't live here don't really understand the history of Denver. They look at Denver as a, like a gateway to their ski resort, or they look at Denver 
as, uh, well, lately, of course, as a cutting-edge art museum, et cetera. But before that, I don't think they really understood the history of Denver and the basically the, the development of the West in the United States. That's very, very true. We used to have a, a young fellow who came to Denver frequently. His name was Peter Sellers. It was not that Peter Sellers, but right. another famous Peter Sellers. And he always called Denver the locker room of the Rocky Mountains. Which meant? <laughs> well, just exactly what you said, what people think of as uh, just a gateway to the mountains. And, yeah. of course, in recent years, it's become a truly great city and, and a destination now for a lot of people coming here. And it's very, very progressive. But as great as it is, and believe it or not, I always have a fun time here because, first of all, the cultural scene the restaurant scene, the and I'm not even a, a drinker of beer to a lot to a large extent, but oh my God, you, you brew more beer than anybody. But what you've done also to preserve the past here, instead of just knocking it down, like Union Station. True, and actually we started about 50 years ago at the same time that on a national basis, historic preservation was becoming recognized and official. And I was fortunate to be involved with the beginning with the development of an area called Larimer Square in the long forgotten lower downtown area and the most recent project. Now, is that Lodo? That is Lodo. And let me tell you something. I, if, if truth be told, and I'm about to tell you the truth, I never come to Denver without going to Lodo. Why? Because I immerse myself inside the tattered cover and never leave. It's, I do so much damage there. But here's the cool thing that I do there, which anybody else can do. First of all, it supports independent bookstores. Number two, they will ship your books for you. You don't have to schlep them on the plane. And number three, you don't have to pay sales tax because it's shipping outside the, uh, outside the state. It's a win-win. And if you go in there, don't think you're going to go in there and browse for 10 minutes. You're going to be in there for two to three hours. It's that cool a place. you got to agree, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of the great destinations I, of I was there. I was there earlier today. Right. Well, yeah. thank Thank you very much, and oh. I know that Joyce Meskus, who originated <laughs> the place, thanks you too. And it's it's just you know they used to have a place in Cherry Creek, but the, thank God they kept the one in Lodo, and it's so great, it really is. But that whole Lodo area, Lower, lower Denver, is like unbelievable. Well, it is a place that's become very very popular in recent years, and and I think will become more so. But you know when I think about preservation, and especially in terms of travel and tourism. Take a look at the hotels that are down there. You have the Oxford, you have the Crawford. These are, you know, places that have just opened in the last couple of years, really, that or redone the last couple of years, that are truly preserved. Well, they aren't really preserved. Um, the Oxford had the, been the, there. the buildings, though. The, the Oxford had been an operating hotel since 1891, I believe. Right, but they've redone it, and, and it's been redone. That's what I'm talking and about. And then, of course. The Union Station wasn't originally a hotel, but that was something that exactly. those of us who developed it right, wanted the, to do. And they used the building for that, and they've done it right. quite well. Right. And then you have other hotels that are opening up in older buildings. Uh, and I may be wrong, but like the Magnolia and a few others. I mean, for me, you, you just drive around or even better, bike around. And you'll see an amazing display of preservation. Denver has become known now as a city for great art and a lot of preservation. And I think it makes it a much more interesting city, a sort of a three-dimensional place. Plus, you've gone out to the neighborhoods that were being neglected, if you will, and you started that preservation work out there, too. Well, and also the idea of people living downtown. That was originally thought to be oh, just listen. a ridiculous oh my, oh my idea. Listen, I moved out to Los Angeles in 1971. We needed a visa to go downtown. <laughs> I mean, nobody went. I went downtown once a year to the police headquarters to renew my press pass and got out. Now, L.A. downtown is the happening place. Well, and it has a lot of wonderful Art Deco buildings, and so thank goodness somebody got the idea 
taking a chance and, and restoring them. What's been your biggest challenge to be a preservationist here in Denver? Uh, it isn't necessarily just in Denver. I think it's very difficult to get financing for these projects because you don't want to put the chain stores in, and those are the ones that have high credit ratings and are bankable. And they pay the bills. They're, they the they're bills. bankable. So um, you have to, and fortunately, I think the world is becoming a lot more accepting. For example, in the Union Station, we only wanted local tenants. We didn't want nationally and, known And you chains. were able to maintain that? We have been able to not only maintain it, but they're doing exceptionally well. So, I mean, it's, a, it's getting to be a happier story. And people, every place that I go to talk to what do you want in your community, they say, well, in certain areas we like the chains, but in this historic area, we want to be sure that it tells the story of our town. Now, there's also an opportunity <clears throat> that many locals can do, local communities can do. It's not about keeping the chain stores out. It's about coming up with some regulations that make sense about height restrictions, signage. Uh, have you done that here in Denver? To some extent, yes. And then and it, sometimes it's localized. But, um, you know, you're very savvy. I guess you travel around a lot. Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but Denver... Um, uh, particularly in the lower downtown, and and it is you know much like Soho, but it has that nickname Lodo, uh, and it's about a 26 block area, and and it's an emerging area, uh, but it certainly is popular with the people, and the Union Station has been a transformative project. Now I have to ask the obvious question because I'm a train nut too. The trains are still operating from Union Station. We have two Amtrak trains a day, but now. With the uh, work that the Regional Transportation District has done, we, ha we are working toward 119 miles locally of uh, rail lines. So, and, for and metropolitan transit. For, for metropolitan transit, and the Union Station is the hub. So ultimately, we will have 200,000 people a day in and out of the station. Wow, which is great for the, for the merchants there, too. And it's very nice for the hotel, too. Not to mention that. But I love the idea that Amtrak is still coming in twice a day. Well, and hopefully, um, in spite of the current budget crisis yes, uh, for transportation, uh, hopefully we will have more transit, uh, not only going east and west, but, but up and down the front range. I have to tell you that you, know, you mentioned the budget crisis, and this is not particular to the Trump administration. This has been going on for 20 years now or longer. Every time Congress meets, somebody tries to kill Amtrak. They try to cut their budget. They try to cut their subsidies. And so many people that we don't pay any attention to and should pay attention to depend on Amtrak. Well, you know, I think that uh, uh, transportation is the only major government program that has to be reauthorized on an annual basis. Why is that? I don't know why it is, but... I think it's because probably because there's a lot of competition for those dollars, and maybe they just have a technique of delaying uh, from one year to another. But it's certainly for the future of our part of the world and the country. Um, it's a, just an, a very major issue, and I was horrified to see that the budget had been cut. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. But I would walk 500 miles an 
been listening to the show, you know we've been talking a lot about food. We've been talking a lot about the explosion in the restaurant scene. Joining me now is somebody who's part of that explosion. He's not just the executive chef. He's the owner of eight Denver restaurants. Yes, and counting, sir. and a former James Beard Award nominee, Troy Gard. How are you, sir? How are you doing today, Peter? Thanks. How do you do eight restaurants? A lot of juggling. Yeah, I mean, you can't be in eight places at once. A lot of juggling. Well, thankfully, they're all in Denver, so I can get to them all within 15 minutes. And yet, even though you've got eight of them, what, there's a new restaurant in Denver opening like once a week just about? Seems like. I think there's 220 that opened just last year, and I think we're on the mark to do, do that, if not more, this year. All right, so then the obvious question I must ask is, how do you stay relevant? Um, um, that's a great question. I was just sitting out there uh, talking to some people in in the lounge. How how do how do you stay relevant? How do you market? You know, it always comes down to me the four walls. I'm an old school guy. I started when there was no uh, internet and no Google and anything like that. So we have to take care of our guests. Word of mouth. Word of mouth, definitely. And uh, you know, a little bit social media here and there, but really, it's just giving the guests a great experience. Well, you've been in Denver now for about 15 <clears throat> years. Correct. From Hawaii. Well, you were just there a couple years ago. I mean, a couple days ago. A couple days ago, you bet. Uh, And I was also there a couple years ago now that you mentioned. But that's a different food scene, right? I mean, when I first went to Hawaii, the big deal of the day was mahi-mahi followed by more mahi-mahi. Enough of the mahi-mahi, right? Well, actually, you know, I worked for Roy's Yamaguchi, uh, Roy's uh, 20-plus years ago. And he actually, for me, kind of started to farm the table because we would use as much local product as possible. Kula onions, kula tomatoes. Uh, the Nalo Greens on Oahu, all the fresh fish. We'd have people calling us at 1 p.m. when they got their boats in. So it was pretty amazing, and I think from there it's it's led to what's going on right now. And it's also led to what's going on here. Oh, Denver is amazing. I mean, you came in yesterday or the day before. How many cranes are going on right now? How many new buildings? How many great chefs? How many new restaurants? I mean, this place is on fire, and I'm excited that I'm here. Okay, so the question then becomes, <clears throat> with that many new restaurants opening and having to support themselves, how do they source the food? It's a great question. I mean, obviously, we're in Colorado, so we can't get you know tomatoes all, all year round, but we do get some really great produce, fruits, uh, vegetables. Actually, one of the best farm-raised striped basses is just three hours south of us in Alamosa, and it's fantastic. You know, when I go to a restaurant, the first thing I order is that Alamosa striped bass. <laughs> what are you talking about? It is dynamic. It's won a couple awards all over the world, and uh, it's farm-raised right here in, in the cold weather and the warm weather, as you can tell today, 85 degrees in March. Yeah. But it's fantastic fish. When you talk about that, farm-raised. Yeah, who, who would think? Great seafood in Colorado. I mean, we're, we're landlocked, and that's what I always thought, too, when I moved here. But, I mean, we get stuff from all over the place any time of day, just like you know, Vegas, you go there and get great products. I mean, we have great purveyors, great farmers, and more and more people are doing fabulous stuff here. What is it, What are you sourcing now that you could never source before? Um, a lot of things, actually, uh, greenhouses, a lot of greens, a lot of vegetables. Before, there wasn't quite as much as that, only in the, like, the summertime. Now they're uh, having the greenhouses. Um, geez, the meat is fantastic here. Obviously, Colorado rack of lamb of is fantastic. Um, but uh, really, seafood, shrimp, fish, trout, uh, the bass I talked to you about, uh, tilapia. I mean, there's some really good stuff coming out of Colorado. All right. So now as the owner of eight restaurants, I have to ask you, I've, I have two pet peeves we have to talk about. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay, here we go. I hate what I call terrible twos. And if I'm going to go to a, to, a, to a restaurant, I want to have a nice dining experience. I don't want to be sitting 15 centimeters away from somebody else rubbing elbows at a terrible two. Meaning I two think top. we're pretty good with that. New York's a little tighter on their uh, terrible. Yeah. Maybe so I'm going to tell you what I do, and you're going to get angry at me. Okay. I always make a reservation for three because then they have to put me at a table for four. And I would be willing to pay a premium for that just to be able to have enough space to relax at dinner and not sit there like I'm on the subway. That's uh, one pet peeve. 
I like it. And it's fixable. No, I'm getting my my mind's rolling right now because we, we do have two tops and some people like yourself complain. We try to not push them too close because you don't want to be uh, you know, you could almost have a whole dating brand. the person next to you, right? <laughs> well, that's how I've met a lot of my dates. No, no. But the thing is, what you can do almost as a marketing campaign is we're only going to put you at a terrible two if you want it. And then watch what happens. Watch what I'll happens. I'll call it the Peter terrible two if you don't mind. No, the well, yes, right, or the Peter, or the Peter beautiful four, right? There you go. I like that's the number idea. one. Now the next one, you may have an answer for this one. I have not been able to figure it out. What is a restaurant reservation if not an implied contract? Right. I'm asking you for a table at eight o'clock at night. You're confirming that. Now it's incumbent upon me to show up. Correct. Right. But if I show up at eight o'clock, and the table's not ready, mm-hmm. right, through no fault of my own, correct? Right? Wouldn't it be in the spirit of hospitality if you just say, "Hey, let me buy you a drink." Right? What do Correct. most restaurants do? Please go to the bar. You buy the drinks. We'll let you know when it's ready. Right. Now, people who would never put up for that on an airplane are putting up with it at a restaurant. But then it gets worse because now you come to me at 820, say your table's ready. I say, great. Oh, you have to settle at the bar. Right. Why? I'm not leaving the restaurant. Just put it on my tab. Let's go. Whatever happened to the customer is at least some of the time right. You got me on the hot seat now. Um, we usually give we usually give like a fifteen minute uh, uh, buffer buffer yeah yeah because I mean it's you know someone's at there at six o'clock we can't say hey you got to leave it's eight o'clock we want people to enjoy their meal but we we do do the same we'll say hey we'll grab you a drink right uh, we'll grab you an appetizer if someone's like you know a little bit moody but. It is a tricky uh, situation. I've read Danny Meyer's book, Setting the Table, and he's, you know, trying to figure that we're all trying to figure that out, right? I know. Troy, thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.